the 1031 exchange does for real estate exactly what money does for your 401k or your IRA inside your IRA. It allows you to take in that instant, the one instance we were talking about, that $40,000 of tax and instead invest that for your own benefit. And as long as you hold the new property or as long as any time you sell that property, you do another 1031 exchange, you will never have to pay tax on that. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Penn, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Dave Foster, who is a 1031 exchange intermediary. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about everything that you need to know about the 1031 exchange. There's a lot of complicated things that go into it and a lot of important timelines that you need to know. So if you are a buy and hold investor, you need to listen to this episode. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy! All right, Dave, thanks so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Hey, Sean, it's great to be here today. Dave Foster coming at you from sunny St. Petersburg, Florida. I looked out earlier and I think I saw a cloud, but I'm not sure. But that's the kind of day it's going to be here. What do you got going on in California? Oh, man, beautiful day today, too. Of course, everyone's kind of scared because of our little coronavirus, but it's all good. I see beautiful skies as well. Awesome. I swear to God, it's spring break, right? So I'm seeing all the tourists, they're doubling up on their purchase of Corona beer. I'm pretty sure they're thinking that's the remedy. We'll see. Very nice. Awesome. I appreciate you having me on the show today. Yeah. And go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know to like, what do you do and uh, what kind of investing you do? Well, first of all, I'm a serial real estate junkie, as most real estate professionals are. Seems like no matter what facet you get into, uh, whether you're a realtor or a service provider or we're a podcaster. We're all frustrated investors at heart. So first and foremost, that's who I am. I'm a real estate investor. But about 25 years ago, I discovered a process called the 1031 Tax Deferred Exchange that allowed me to sell investment real estate and purchase new investment real estate without paying tax on the profit or having to recapture the depreciation. And I started doing those 25 years ago for myself and started doing those for others. And here we are 25 years later, still going strong because why? Nobody loves to pay taxes. Absolutely not. And for a lot of our listeners, or I feel like for most of our listeners, we do know what 1031 exchanges are. But for those who don't, can you give a quick overview of what the 1031 exchange is? Absolutely. It's one of the oldest parts of the tax code. So it's nothing new that's been around, but there was a major change in the tax code that came into play in 1996-ish that all of a sudden turned this from a very user-unfriendly process 
into something that any investor on the street, you or I or anybody could do. And it is as simple as selling a piece of real estate using the services of a qualified intermediary, a third party that documents the process and following a few steps and then purchasing new investment real estate to replace what you sold. And when you do that process correctly, you don't have to pay tax on the profit. And the impact of that can be huge, especially when you look at the tax rates of where you're at. California, which by the way, I heard not too long ago, is the second highest taxed entity in the world behind Denmark. So congratulations, kudos to you guys. I'm in Florida where we don't have a state tax. So I'm hanging in there so far, okay. But when you look at the impact of selling a piece of investment real estate without a 1031 exchange and you have a $100,000 gain, you could very easily end up paying 30 to 35% to 40% of that in taxes if you're a California investor. That means that $40,000 leaves your pocket and goes to the government. Now, everybody says, well, taxes, Dave, is that a big deal? I've got to pay them anyways. Think about the impact of money that you have in a retirement account, a 401k, an IRA. That is money that is turning itself over and compounding because it's tax deferred. You're not just making money on what you contribute. You're making money on the tax that you're not paying out. The 1031 exchange does for real estate exactly what money does for your 401k or your IRA inside your IRA. It allows you to take in that instant, the way instance we were talking about, that $40,000 of tax and instead invest that for your own benefit. And as long as you hold the new property or as long as any time you sell that property, you do another 1031 exchange, you will never have to pay tax on that. So what's going to be the impact over the course of 20 years? That first $40,000 that I got to invest, let's say I make 10% a year on a rental that I buy with that. That means that I'm making $4,000 a year that's going to me that I would not have had access to. And by the time you do that over 20 or 30 years, plus a few more sales, as someone once said, that turns into real money. And that's the impact of the 1031. Albert Einstein called it the, the eighth wonder of the world, compound interest. So it's the ability to keep your money working for you. Yeah. And then the great thing is, I think at the very end of your life, and you pass away, you can you know, give that portfolio to your descendants. Basically, that tax basis gets increased to what the market value is of the day, right? That day. And basically, they never pay taxes. They never pay taxes on it. That's exactly right. I actually have a family that we are on their third generation. And they have not paid real estate gain tax since I've been working with them. I started with grandfather 20 years ago. And he passed away. And all of that portfolio went to his son with a step up in basis. And he started continuing to reinvest. And when he died about six years ago, his children took it over. And they're now doing the same thing. That's three generations of tax-free wealth. So we like to talk about the mantra that you should have with this is 
the four Ds. Defer, 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 die. I don't recommend it, but what the heck, we're all going there anyways. So why pay it if you don't have to? But the real power even beyond that is that you can structure this so that you get the benefit of it now in your lifetime as well. And then you get the bonus of giving it away and providing legacy to your children. So hugely powerful tool. Absolutely. Do you want to talk about the timeline for 1031 exchanges? I know there are some pretty strict regulations with regards to if you miss your deadline, then too bad you lose your 1031. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's actually six requirements that all have to be met. If you lose, if you fail in one of them, then you lose your whole exchange. The two most critical ones are the timing ones. From the date of your sale, you've only got 45 days to identify your potential replacement properties. So that becomes critical for you to be shopping quick and hard to find those next properties. Because at the end of day 45, you're stuck with whatever's on your list. And the list is not going to be that big, again, because of requirements. So I counsel people that even before you close the sale of your old property, you should be shopping. And if you can get a property under contract before your old property closes, that's perfectly fine. It doesn't matter as long as the order that you sell your old property before you close the sale of your new property is maintained. Now, you've got 180 days to complete the entire process. That's not such a bad deal. But that first 45 is critical and it's probably the toughest to meet. So, and the, the key to this is there's never, almost never, going to be exceptions or extensions. The only time there are, are not for any individuals, but in a federally declared emergency. And since we're sitting in the middle of Corona Central, we may be there, right? So let's talk about it. If the president declares a national disaster, then the IRS will follow back in and they will give an extension to dates of filings. And they will say something to the tune of any IRS filing that was due between March 13th and April 13th is now extended to June 1st. So if your 45 day period ended in the middle of that, you would get an extension to June 1st. So again, that's kind of like having to defer and then die. It's a good news, bad news scenario. So you don't want to hope for a national disaster. But if it happens, you make it some relief, but don't count on it. Be focused and be speedy with your shopping. You know, the other reason for that is you don't want assets being idle. If you're going to sell a property, you want to redeploy those assets and get the cash flow coming as soon as possible. Yeah. So let's follow through on that, uh, the 45 days. Cool. Um, have you ever had a situation from your clients where they had identified those three properties and then for whatever reason, it just like those properties became unavailable or they weren't able to get them at the price they wanted and those three properties fell through? Like, what do you do in that situation? Yeah, well, if you're before day 45, you just name some more. If you're after day 45, one of the saddest days of my life was an investor in 2004 who got outbid. It was a large asset, but he got outbid for the only property on his 45-day list. And he had to go back 
to the person who outbid him and offer him even more money hmm. so that he could be allowed to purchase it. Because the IRS doesn't make distinctions on who you're purchasing the property from or what the terms are going to be or even what the property is. It could burn down. But if that's the property on your list, that's the one you can buy. And you can't go back and change it, right? You can't just say, oh, I want another property. Not after day 45, yeah. So I think that poor guy spent about $60,000 for the rights to buy the property that he got outbid for the first time. Wow, that's crazy. He was really grumpy. I mean, I would be too. I mean, you're basically doing a wholesale deal for a deal that you didn't want to wholesale. Yeah, that's exactly right. Very nice, very nice. So those are two requirements. What are the other four that you mentioned? Right, so there's nuance to all of them, but just to give you the 30-second, 10,000-foot overview, the same entity that owns the property, that sells the old property, has to be the same entity that purchases the new property. But any tax-paying entity can do 1031 exchanges, whether individual, trust, corporation, LLC, doesn't matter. But the ownership has to be consistent in between the two. The second most misunderstood requirement is the reinvestment requirements. In order to defer all tax, you must purchase at least as much as your net sale. And you have to use all of your cash in the next purchase or purchases. So what that means is if I sell an asset for $500,000, let's say I sold it for five hundred thirty, and there were $30,000 of closing costs and commissions, and there was a $200,000 mortgage on it. My net sale is five thirty minus the thirty, so my net sale is five hundred thousand dollars. So I must purchase at least five hundred thousand dollars of real estate. The mortgage that was paid off was two hundred, so then I am left with three hundred thousand dollars that's in my exchange account, and I must use all of that to purchase at least five hundred thousand dollars of real estate. Now. Some people will mistakenly think that that means I have to replace a mortgage. You don't. You can come in with backup funds from wherever you want. Profit sharing, cash on hand, access to 401k, wherever. As long as you purchase at least as much as you sell and use all the proceeds, you'll defer all your tax. So that, along with the timing, are probably the two most misunderstood because people come to me all the time, Sean, and they'll say, well, I put $50,000 down on this. I would like to take that 50,000 back out and only go forward with my profit. My answer is I get that. But when you take that $50,000, the IRS is not seeing that you're taking your original down payment. The IRS says you're taking profit. And although I agree totally with you, that your down payment's not taxable, the IRS says that's not your down payment. And unfortunately, the problem, as you well know, is that any argument with the IRS is going to be won by the IRS. All right, I want to clarify something right here. So you mentioned that, you know, 500K property, 530 property, you sell it. Let's say that your quote-unquote gain or whatever equity you have is 300000 because you have a 200000 mortgage. So you're not allowed to just buy a property with cash for just $300,000, it has to be a $500,000 plus property? Or several properties. And this actually feeds into one of the really unique strategies that a lot of our investors are deploying these days. You know, as you're well aware, being in the Bay Area, 
Tell me uh, how your NOI is, uh, the value of your assets right now. Is there still a positive sign in front of it? Yeah, no. <laughs> I'm hanging on. Well, that's the problem. But everybody in the world is jealous of the appreciation run-up you've had over the last 10 years because that's phenomenal. And that is how real estate operates nationwide. There are areas that typically appreciate heavy and there are areas that typically don't appreciate but have incredible cash flow. So what happens at this time in the market is we start to see investors leaving, let's just say the bay, with high appreciation and they're going to go buy in cash flow areas because they can turn that one to two percent return on their investment size into something like eight or nine or ten percent. But the problem would be a modest place in the bay is gonna sell for a million, couple million, you know? At least I modest, isn't that amazing? So I'm gonna take a million dollars and go to Kansas City. Can I find a place in Kansas City or Cleveland or Toledo? for a million bucks that's gonna cash flow. That's a problem. But there's a billion, $150,000, properties that are generating good cash flow. So the key to this part of the strategy is that you don't have to purchase into a one property to meet that reinvestment requirement. You can go into multiple properties. So sell a million dollar property on the bay that's generating nothing in income and transfer that using the 1031 into five properties in Tulsa, Oklahoma for 200,000 each. Did you purchase a million dollars? Absolutely. And you can use the 300,000 as down payments on those, take out new loans, or you could simply bring in your own cash or something else that's happening now is that the seller could provide owner financing. All of those things are options that still get you where you need to get to in the 1031. Nice. So the idea of trades of 1031ing from appreciation into cash flow is a pretty big strategy. Hmm. Uh, I want to go back to when you mentioned that the ownership has to be the same. I mean, I kind of get it. Basically, if you bought it under your personal name, then when you buy this next property, it should also be under your personal name. If it's under a certain LLC, then when you buy it, it should be from the same LLC. Is that correct? Yeah, you could almost substitute very easily the word taxpayer for the word owner. Because the way this statute reads, it's really the taxpayer for the old property that has to be the taxpayer for the new property. And to figure out what that is, you simply look at the tax return. The tax return that is reporting the activity of the property is the taxpayer of that property. And when they buy the new property, it needs to be still reported on that same tax return. So in the example that you gave, someone owns the property in their name. Almost assuredly, that property is being reported on their regular 1040 tax return. So when they sell, they want to buy it in such a way that it's going to be reported still on that tax return. So buying in their own name, absolutely. But sometimes there's some wiggle room depending on what finance considerations are because there is a thing called a disregarded entity, which would be something like an LLC that only has one member, that individual, 
and chooses to be taxed as a sole proprietor. In that event, all of the activity of the property is re still reported on the 1040 because that LLC does not file a tax return. So whether the property is in the name of the owner or in the name of the LLC that's disregarded, it's still reported on the same tax return. So it's still the same taxpayer, whether the deed is in the name of the owner or in the name of the LLC. Because all the IRS sees are what? Our tax returns. And that's what they want to see consistent. That makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Basically, they only care about the name on the deed. It's more about who is paying the tax behind it, right? That's exactly right. Okay, cool. I have a question then to follow up with that. If you buy and sell a property on your own name or whatever, and then you decide to purchase the new property in, let's say, a partnership, right, a syndication, is that possible? And if so, how do you do it? Ah, you use the S word, yes. Because that's a hot topic, isn't it? Syndications. There are a lot of people out there that are buying large assets and then they're letting people come in with them as fractional passive investors. The problem with that in 1031 is that these syndications are almost always being set up as general and limited partnerships. So when you take your money and invest in that, you're not investing in purchasing real estate. You're purchasing a membership interest in the entity that owns the real estate. And that doesn't work for 1031 because of rule number five, which is it has to be real estate specific that has been held for productive use in business investment or trade. So you could not sell a piece of real estate and purchase a REIT because that's buying an interest in a security. You cannot sell a piece of real estate and use the 1031 to buy a membership in a syndication because you're buying the membership, not the real estate itself. But where it will work is if that syndicator has set up a structure that will allow you to purchase a tenant in common interest in the real estate itself. So it's, you know, a million dollar uh, multifamily complex that they're doing a partner real syndication on and you're coming in with $200,000, they let you buy 20% of the real estate itself and then contribute that into the partnership after the fact. So there's some ways to do it, but in general, you gotta be very, very careful or you will get yourself in trouble with a 1031 because you actually have to be buying a deeded interest in real estate. Okay. Uh, it makes sense for syndications because they're usually very large and they might have 50 subscribers in there. But what about for like a smaller property where it's maybe a fourplex, you have just you and your friend, would that be considered a tenancy in common as well? It could be. You could set up a formal partnership or an LLC to manage it or whatever. Any of those structures though, are going to file a tax return, aren't they? A partnership return or the LLC will file a return. So who's the taxpayer? that entity. So like if you and I got together, we bought a property and we formed an LLC to hang on to it. That LLC is the entity that's the taxpayer. Now we could sell the entities, we could sell the property 
the LLC could and do a 1031 exchange and go buy new property. But Dave and Sean are stuck together because we're both members of the LLC. The way to craft it so that you're the most flexible with a 1031 would be for you and I to purchase it as tenants in common. So we just get together, we each throw 50% of the ring and we buy the property. What that really means is that I own a property that happens to be 50% of a bigger property. You own a piece of property that happens to be 50% of a bigger piece of property. And then when we sell that, you can 1031 yours and I can 1031 mine, or we could stay together. So tenants in common is much more flexible. Yeah. I'm just going to build a nitty gritty here. How does that work in terms of like signing closing docs or even, you know, writing a purchase agreement when you're trying to buy a property in the first place, if you're trying to buy as tenants in common, like an A and B thing? It's as easy as setting up the contract so that there's two buyers. Okay. That it's really, you're buying tenants in common always specifies the percent of interest that you're getting in real estate. So, I mean, you're a lot smarter than I am. So you may get 60% of the property. So you would go on the contract and then go on the closing documents as the 60% buyer of the new property. And I would take title to 40% of it. So those kind of things usually aren't very difficult at all for most title companies to sort through. Yeah, it's all about just talking to them and letting them know, communicating in the beginning. But what you're doing is you're feeding me some amazing softballs to segue back into the last requirement, which is you have to use a third-party entity who's going to document the 1031 and who's going to hold the proceeds. And that entity is called the exchange accommodator or the qualified intermediary. And they have to be involved prior to the closing of the sale. Of the first property. Correct. And those are the people that are going to help you walk through the process to make sure you stay straight with the 1031 rules. Yeah. You want to talk more about that? Like when should they actually approach you? Because they probably shouldn't approach someone like you the day before they close, right? Well, I got one yesterday that was closing today. So yeah, last minute seems to be uh, an every once in a while occurrence. I'll tell you this, my personal record, and I'm sure there's other intermediaries out there, that may have beaten this, but my personal record was 22 minutes. I walked into a closing. Now, this was a long time ago, back when closings were in person. And I walked in with our buyer who was finishing up at 1031. And of course, you know, you can see I walk into a room and everybody wonders, you know, where's the machine guns and the Sopranos? So I'm at this table and they go, well, who is this guy? And my clients introduced me and said, he's our intermediary. Well, what's that? Oh, we sold a piece of property. We don't have to pay tax. They were bragging about it. And the people there on the table looked at, the, at their realtor and said, they can do that. And the realtor said, well, yeah. And they said, can we do that? And I said, sure. And they looked at the realtor and said, you're fired. Now, they were joking. They were joking. But we took a coffee break, had a cup of coffee, 22 minutes later, we were starting the 1031 exchange for them. So it's any time prior to the closing of the sale. But here's where you'll get your greatest benefit. There are so many strategic uses 
for the 1031 exchange. That as soon as you start contemplating, I might want to sell this property. It's a great time to start talking to a QI that's going to help you unlock those strategic options. They'll be working with your accountant, with your legal team to help you see the best direction for you to go. Because just like we talked about 1031s being used to sell one property and buy multiple properties, they can be used the opposite way as well. You could sell, I get this very commonly. Someone calls me and says, Dave, I'm tired. I say, why are you tired? I'm tired because I got 20 rentals and I'm on my eighth tenant call already today. And I went out of this business. I got a poor guy in Duluth, Minnesota who said, Dave, it's winter. I'm done shoveling snow. I'm selling them all. So he's going to consolidate into something that is less management heavy and still provides him cash flow. You can move geographies going from a tax heavy state to a tax light state or places where the appreciation bubble still hasn't taken place. Or you could move from residential to commercial or vice versa. The sky's the limit. I mean, that's just a few of the things. But you want to make sure you've got the time to explore them so you're not caught with those time deadlines. And then you're acting. I had a poor girl from San Diego that just lost an exchange because she sold her property and she didn't know where and she didn't know what she wanted to put it into. So in the course of 45 days, she looked in San Diego, New York, Kansas City, Tennessee at commercial properties, vacation rental properties, multifamily properties. That's information overload. So she couldn't find the right deal and ended up having to lose her exchange. So that's a really long answer to your question, which is the sooner you involve your QI, the better prepared you'll be for the sale mm-hmm. and a successful completion. You know, I feel like in her case, I'm just theorizing. It, it seems like it might have just been better to just pull the trigger on something because when you have a 1031 exchange, all that money that you're kind of giving away to taxes could be used, you know, even leveraged, right? Because it's more down payment for your next property. So, yeah, that's a really tough analysis decision that people have to go through. And I think emotionally, there's a lot of people on all sides of that because we always have the mantra of you make money in real estate when, can you finish that sentence? You buy. Exactly. But the segue, the sequel to that is you keep your money when you sell. So you could create the best structure in the world deal-wise, but if it all goes out the back door in taxes, when you sell it, what have you benefited yourself? The other side of that though is buying a bad deal. And you've got to do an analysis and say, this one's not going to make quite as much as I wanted, but it's still better than paying the tax. So I'm going to do it. Or you say, you know what? I think I'm going to wait for the market to turn around. So I'm willing to pay the tax. And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to that. It really just depends upon each individual's focus and perspective. But the key takeaway is that there is no penalty for starting a 1031 exchange and not finishing it. So you get down to day 45 
and you have not found a good property, you let it die if you want. Yeah. Get your proceeds back, no penalty, you pay the tax. But it's usually a pretty small price to pay for getting that extra amount of time to keep your options open. That's true. And while we're on that topic, do you want to kind of talk about what it costs to set up a 1031 exchange? Yeah, we actually did. Uh, we've done a couple of different studies for some organizations. And what we found is that there's a range. I'm going to exclude an internet only thing where you fill out a form on the internet because I just don't know how legit those things are. But a full service qualified intermediary, someone who's going to be a person who's going to be an expert, whether that's all they do or whether they're an attorney or an accountant who's doing them, is going to run between 750 and 1200 for a complete exchange. Now, I don't know if that surprises you or not. That's not that much. That's not that much. <laughs> exactly. They get a little bit higher as you go to each coast, and they get a little bit higher if it's, say, an attorney who's only doing a few a year versus a full-service qualified intermediary. You know, like us, where we've got economies of scale. So, but yeah, if you figure 750 to 1000 bucks, you can find a really good intermediary that's going to take care of you. So that's kind of noise level when you're looking at everything else you've got that you can potentially save. Exactly. And it's definitely worth it to start, right? 700 is a small investment if you can potentially save hundreds of thousands in taxes, right? Who knows? That's exactly right. Cool. I also noticed that, I mean, so I haven't done a 1031 myself, but I have properties. And every single year we do depreciation. We take uh, you know a certain amount of the property's value and write them off in taxes. Now, I know with 1031 exchanges, especially there's something called or I guess when you sell the home, there is depreciation recapture, which is where they take all of that money that you depreciated and they basically say, oh, your basis is now lower because you took depreciation. Do you want to talk about how that works when you 1031 into a different property? Well, I laugh, we're laughing, but really we should be crying. We're crying. I'm from the government. I'm here to help. Here's a tax break. But then when you sell the property, they say, oh, just kidding. We want that tax break back. Come on. So... Yeah, it's basically a game of pretend. Uh, the IRS allows you, for tax purposes, to pretend that every year your real estate is worth one twenty seventh or one thirty fifth less than it was the year before. So it's basically they're letting you pretend that you're taking a loss on that value, and when you sell it, they say, "Well, we gave that to you, and now." We want it back. So if you had been depreciating a property for a few years, say it was a $300,000 property and you depreciated $100,000 of it, when you sell that, the IRS is going to make you pay 25% of the value of the depreciation. So you're going to have a tax bill of $25,000 when all you did was just write it off on your tax return. And you know what's really sneaky evil about it is that the way that the tax code reads, Sean, is that you could say, well, that's stupid. I'm just not going to take depreciation. But the IRS makes you recapture that and pay that 25% on depreciation that you took or that you didn't take, but could have been taken. Yep. They assume you take it. So if you try to not take it, you're still going to pay it. How's that for a friendly gift? Yeah. So the cool thing about that is that both gain 
and depreciation recapture are deferred by the 1031 exchange. So you may have a property that hasn't appreciated at all. You bought it for $200,000, you are selling it for $200,000, but you've owned it for 27 years. So its value is basically zero. So you've got a tax bill on $200,000 at 25%. So in that instance, even though you're not making profit, you would still want to do a 1031 exchange just to get that depreciation to roll into the new property. Now, if you buy the new property for $200,000, all you've done is transfer your basis of zero over to it. So you're not going to get any more depreciation. But if you buy a much larger property, say for $400,000, then you get to start a new depreciation schedule on the extra $200,000. So if you want that tax break, you can then take it. And that's actually when it can be a benefit, is as long as you're 1031-ing, so you never have to repay that recapture, then you can defer, 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 and die. And then it's worth the tax write-off. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And I was wondering, who are 1031 exchanges not for? Great question. Let's go back to requirement number whatever it was, that the property has to be real estate. It has to be real estate that you had the intent. That's a key word. Five letters, but it's also important. The intent of holding, I-N-T, six letters. I'm going to count as bad at math. What can I say? You had the intent of holding for productive use in business, trade, or for investment. So the two key words there, your intent was to hold. So that kind of implies that it's a long-term investor, a cash flow investor. Now, there's no statutory holding period. And there's no requirement to generate income. But you must be able to demonstrate your intent to hold. So really, who are these things not for? The people that are doing what we call fixing and flipping. Right? I fix and I flip. Why am I buying that real estate? I'm buying it primarily to resell it. Because I got it cheap, I'm going to improve it, I'm going to resell it. That's no different than a cabinet maker who buys wood and builds cabinets and then sells them. They are taking the raw wood and they're creating what the IRS calls inventory. And that inventory is taxed at ordinary income rates. So it's actually more heavily taxed than capital gains would be, but they cannot do 1031s because their intent was not told for productive use. So you want to play a game with me? Let's play a game. We'll play investor versus dealer. So dealers can't do it. Investors can. And this comes from two months ago. This is a real story because you can't make this kind of stuff up. Guy comes to me and says, I want to do a 1031 exchange. I said, okay, tell me about your property. I bought it two months ago. So what do you think, Sean? What's the jury say? Dealer? Or investor? Again, depends. You read the you read ahead of the notes. I said, well, I don't know that you can do that, but let's talk about your intent. He said, well, I'm not a fix and flipper. I've never done that. 
Because as a matter of fact, when I bought this property, there is a clause in the purchase agreement that I had to honor the lease that was on the property, even though it's under market, because it was a friend of the sellers. So what was his intent? Fine hold. So hold it, yeah. He's got this, the uh, settlement statement to show that. But here's where it gets even better. I said, well, dude, why are you selling it? You bought this agreed to hold. He said, oh, tenant moved out after 30 days. And I said, what? He said, yeah. Uh, I said, well, why? He said, well, I think it was when the bear took up residence and she moved out. So she had stopped and had moved out because she was scared of the bear. And he had pictures. I said, dude, I don't think as an intermediary, I could guarantee an exchange. But if I was going to, I would guarantee that one. Hmm. Yeah, so the guy had pictures. And I said, you know, I don't think any intermediary is ever going to be able to guarantee your exchange. But if I could, that one I would guarantee. You got pictures and a settlement statement. Exchange away. Very nice. So how do you show intent? Like, let's say that one day I bought a property. I did intend to flip it, but then I end up liking it so much. I want to hold it as a buy and hold. How do you make that transition to then show that it's worth 1031 exchanges? You know, that's actually a really interesting way of saying it. I bought it with the intent of reselling it, but then I changed my intent and decided to hold it. That would become very obvious because you would put a renter in it. You would improve it and offer it for rent. Or you would do, it would be on two consecutive tax returns. All those kinds of things can go to demonstrate. Now, the opposite is not quite so clear sometimes. I bought this with the intent, like our bear guy. Dave, I bought it intending to hold it, but something changed called Yogi the Bear that caused me to sell it. So an unsolicited offer to buy in this time of the market is very common a reason. Well, I didn't mean to sell it. I was improving the property. I had it available for rent. I was ready to put renters in. And someone came along and said, I'll give you twice what you paid. I mean, it's not unheard of. So the IRS understands that there can be circumstances that could cause you to change your intent. A deal too good to refuse. An accident that just happens to be very fortunate. When that happens once, it's very easy to say it was just an accident. Where the cowboys get into trouble is when that same accident happens seven or eight times in a year. They just may be fixing flippers disguised. Yeah, makes sense. So yeah, what was the alternative to what you were saying? You were mentioning the birth strategy earlier? Yes. So that's one of the great alternatives, which is uh, instead of buying and fixing and flipping, what you would do is you would buy with the intent of holding for productive use. And you would buy it, rehab it, rent it. And then if you wanted to get money out to satisfy that craving for action, you would refinance it and take that cash and go and buy your new property. So instead of flipping it and having to pay all the tax, you hold on to it for a while. And the refinance is not taxable. It's tax-free. And then a year or so down the road, 
or whenever it's time, now you've got a property that you very obviously purchased with the intent of holding. So now you can sell it and do the 1031 exchange. So just adapting your strategy to have a little bit longer runway in view can still get you extra properties the way you want, but it also is going to defer the tax and keep you out of the higher tax brackets. So that's one beautiful strategy to convert a fix and flipper into a 1031 investor. So do you recommend Burr investors to hold on to the property for at least a year to pass that IRS screen check? Oh, great question. Although there's no statutory holding period, one year feels pretty good to just about everybody. There used to be a mantra in my industry back in the old days where we said a year and a day, a year and a day, a year and a day. That was the, yeah, I think it was more Hollywood than anything, but there were a couple of reasons why a year and a day feels good. First of all, it always turns the property from a short-term capital gain into a long-term capital gain. So that just feels longer, right? In addition to that, it ensures that no matter when you bought the property, it's always going to be reported on two consecutive tax returns. So, and remember, that's how we communicate with the IRS. So they're going to want to see it. They like to see it if they ever look at it on two consecutive tax returns. That looks like two years. There's some real nuanced stuff with some old case laws where the language was used by the presiding judge of a period that wasn't the period, but could be one appropriate period. And they used the phrases two years, two tax years, and two calendar years. So I don't know, how long is that? If I bought it on December 31st and I sold it on January 1st, that's two tax years. That's also two calendar years. So that's a technicality that satisfies it. So nobody really knows. Because why? It all goes back to the facts of the case and how you can demonstrate intent. I had another client who was a farmer who bought a piece of land at an auction. Now, usually you go to auctions to buy stuff and he sold it 90 days later and he wanted to do a 1031 exchange. Well, that didn't feel real good, right? Guy goes bottom shopping and finds it and sells it. But his accountant said, it's fine. The reasons for why it was fine was, first of all, he was selling it for 10 times what he paid for it. It was an unsolicited offer. Well, I'd kind of have to be crazy to not sell it, right? Secondly, he'd never sold another piece of property in his life. So he had no pattern of that. Lastly, the accountant said, well, he's already bought seeds and he's planted a crop. I feel pretty good that he meant to hold it. So see, it's all those little individual things, whether it's planting a crop or whether it's taking pictures of the bear that demonstrate I meant to hold it, but something changed my mind. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you want to briefly go over the other advanced 1031 exchange strategies? Sure. Well, as you're going through the life cycle of a real estate investor, you're going to be doing all those things we talked about earlier. You're going to be changing your numbers of real estate, locations of real estate, classes of real estate. 
you're going to look for market inefficiencies. A couple that are really fun and one that I actually implemented myself to turn $1 into a boat that we lived on for 12 years. Now you say, how do I do that? A boat's not real estate. What we did was a series of conversions. We would do 1031 exchanges and buy investment property. And then after a year or two, we would move into that property and convert it into our primary residence. Now, the rules for your primary residence are different. And all of mine were prior. My gosh, as soon as I say this, I'm going to end up revealing my age. So I better be careful. Prior to 2008, if you moved in and converted a property, you could get 100% of the primary residence exclusion. So, which is that if you sell a property that you've lived in for two out of the previous five years before the sale, my wife and I could take the first $500,000 of profit tax-free. So what we did was a 1031 exchange into a really nice house. Then we would move into that house in a year or two. And two years later, all of the profit, including the 1031 profit, rolled forward, was ours tax-free. And we put that money into the bank and built up the boating kitty. And after, I think it took us 14 years total, we were able to buy the boat using tax-free dollars that were originally 1031 tax-deferred dollars. So just to be clear, that doesn't work anymore, right? This is back in 2008. That was in 2008, but it's not totally gone. And here's what's cool about it. Now, I think my poster, my picture is in somebody's locker at the IRS because we're a poster child for this thing. They saw what we were doing and said, no, 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 no. You can still do that, but you have to prorate the tax-free gain between the period you actually live in it and when it was used as a rental. So let's just, yeah, when you do a 1031, you also have to have owned the property for five years. So let's run through the scenario. I sell a piece of property that's very highly appreciated. And I go and I buy a beautiful, this is going to be a real example from a realtor uh, client of mine on St. Pete Beach who did 1031 exchanges and bought three identical condos on the same floor in the same building on St. Pete Beach. They're investment properties. He generates income. But when he is ready to retire, he is going to move into the first one. Okay? So he just converted that from investment into his primary residence. So now it's going to fall under the rules of Section 121, your primary residence. Once he has owned that for a total of five years, once he has lived in it for at least two of those five, he's going to sell it. And if he's lived in it for two, he gets 40% of the gain tax-free. So let's say he bought it, used it for investment for two, or one, and then moved into it, and lived in it for three, or let's even say four, lived in it for four, he would get 80% of the gain tax 
free. He's going to have to recapture depreciation because the IRS is on to that. But he gets 80% of the profit tax-free. So it's not 100%, but it's not bad. Guess where he's going to move, Sean? The next one. Are you left at 1031 the proceeds or is it kind of like a you just take whatever you get and then pay the tax on the rest? That's exactly what he's going to take, pay the tax on the rest. Because he's selling his primary residence and he's just going to pay the tax. But a bunch of that's going to be tax-free. And then he moves into the next one. What was funny was I asked his wife how she felt about that. Because, you know, that's moving an awful lot in retirement. She goes, yeah, when it's time to redecorate, we'll just move. Nice. Yeah. What a great strategy. Because remember, the second best strategy is to defer, 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 and then die. This way, they get to defer, and then they get to change the use and at least get some of that tax-free. So kind of a massive strategy. Also along the way, another real popular strategy is the idea of 1031ing from management-heavy properties, that single-family rental that's down the street where I'm always getting the calls and I'm doing the plumbing, into passive fractional opportunities that are 1031 compliant, but they act like syndications. So you have zero management and you still get depreciation on them. They could be triple net commercial properties or they could be tenants in common projects or they could be a thing called a Delaware statutory trust. But all of those qualify for 1031 treatment. And with all of them, you have no management responsibilities. So they become what we would call mailbox money. You're simply getting your check for the returns. And then, of course, what happens after a period of time? You die, your heirs get it, the whole cycle starts over. And that's kind of, in a nutshell, what the life cycle is. We may start out as an accidental investor. Um, I was single, she was single, we each had our own houses. We got married and we moved into one of the properties. By the way, do you know which one of those you always move into? No. Which one? You always move into hers because it's the only one that's clean. <laughs> so you just became accidental landlords, didn't you? You go down the road. You like that. So you decide to sell that property, do a 1031 exchange, go buy two properties. Then you wake up. You got a bunch of properties. You're tired. You start to buy two 1031s and buy fewer properties. You turn them from management heavy into management light. You start to collect mailbox money. Maybe you go buy a vacation rental that you turn into a retirement home down the road. And then again, you pass away and your heirs get to do the whole thing again using government dollars. Awesome. Yeah, pretty good gig. Uh, the, the turn it into a sailboat was quite fun, I got to tell you. Yeah, I'm sure. All right, Dave, well, you gave us so many good tips on the 1031 Exchange. Do you have any last words of advice for our listeners before we end our show today? You know what? There's a whole lot of people that are starting to just explore real estate investing, either because they're not passionate about their jobs or they just love what it entails. Like I know you and I, we sing from the same page. You know, we love getting our hands in there and analyzing deals and buying and selling real estate. If you're passionate about it, do it. 
and do it now. Because I think life is all about passion. And if there was something I would tell someone, it is, first of all, only explore and do what you're passionate about. Because if you're not passionate about your work, a couple of things are going to happen. First of all, you're going to suck at it. It's not your passion. You're not going to do it well. And you're going to burn out quicker. And life's too short for that. So only do what you're passionate about. And if there's ever any doubt, do it now. We took a midlife retirement to move on to a boat with four little boys. Because that was our passion at the time. Guess what? Here I am, 20 years later, still investing in real estate, still working with 1031 exchanges. As you can tell, it's a little bit passionate for me as well. But I followed my muse at the time, and it led me into other opportunities to continue exploring that. So do it now and do what you're passionate about. That's awesome. So Dave, how can people get in contact with you? Best way is to come right to our website, which is www.the1031investor.com. You can catch me there. We've got all sorts of videos and articles and examples of the kinds of things we were talking about today. And if you're interested in a 1031 exchange for your folks today, if they want to, come introduce yourself to us through that link. The 1031 investor backslash podcast dot com and they'll get $50 off their first exchange. And then they'd better be sending a thank you note to you to say thanks for the discount. Oh, we should say thank you to you for all the information. Hey, it was my pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Me too. All right, Dave. Well, thanks so much for being on the show today. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks. Cool. Take care. Here's some of the key takeaways from this episode. The timelines in the 1031 exchange seem to be the most important factor here. You also need to make sure that you're buying and selling the same asset type. So you can't sell a piece of real estate and then use those funds to buy a share in a syndication. That won't fly and you're going to lose your 1031 exchange. And you also need to do this whole 1031 exchange process before you close on the property. There isn't a real timeline per se, because as Dave said, you can do it within a couple of minutes of closing. So just make sure that you go into it knowing that you're going to 1031 exchange. Uh, the hardest part is probably identifying that property within the first 45 days. And obviously working with your intermediary afterwards to make sure that the property you're going to buy or the assets you're going to buy afterwards are actually qualified investments and not just something that will ruin your 1031 exchange. The whole idea is to buy properties, 1031 exchange, and then keep going until you pass away. So if you guys want to learn more about doing a 1031 exchange, definitely contact Dave on his website that I mentioned earlier in this episode. As always, you can find the show notes on our website, everythingrei.com slash podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.